This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. You're about to hear from renowned economist Mark Skousen, who's going to tell us why that number GDP is not a very good picture, totally accurate picture of the U.S. economy. If you want to get the real goods on what's happening in the U.S. economy, listen to what Mark says, because then you'll be ahead of the rest of the crowd on seeing the trends for the future. But first, when I look at this week, here's what's ahead. Well, we have a number of numbers coming out this week. On Wednesday, 9-11, we get an oil report on inventories. That'll give us an idea of demand in the U.S. economy. Following day, gas report. Natural gas industry facing a lot of pressure because of declining demand and an inability to ship more natural gas overseas. We get into another pair of numbers on 9-11-9-12. On Wednesday, 9-11, we get the producer price index number. The Federal Reserve has still loving inflation, which hasn't really shown up yet. We'll see if uh, their dream, nightmare in my mind, comes to fruition. And on Thursday the 12th, we get the Consumer Price Index. Again, not very accurate on what people are actually paying in the U.S. economy, but something that's going to get a lot of headlines. Also on Thursday, initial claims for unemployment. That should still be a pretty good number. And on 9-13, Friday the 13th, oh, bad day, University of Michigan releases its survey of consumers. Now, there hasn't been much correlation in the past between consumer confidence and actual happenings in the economy in the future, but still, it's a good idea of whether the consumer is still confident. Short term, that could mean sales. Now, around the rest of the world, in Britain, Prime Minister Boris Johnson must feel like he's in the Roach Motel. You can get in the European Union, but by golly, it's almost impossible to get out. You're going to see more maneuvering with him in the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Johnson wants to get a snap election. The opposition party, the Labour Party, doesn't want it because it knows it would get clobbered. But a lot of conservatives in Johnson's party don't want it either because they want to stay in Brexit. So you have the majority of Britons voting to get out of Brexit, but in Parliament they want to stay in. But Don't underestimate Boris. He's been frustrated so far, but he'll find a way to break out and get that election. Now, the Federal Reserve doesn't meet until a week from now, but there'll be plenty of speculation in the days ahead. Will they lower interest rates? And by how much? 25 basis points, 50 basis points. I think the Fed will be cautious as usual and do the 25. The president will denounce it as too little. We'll have the usual fireworks, which at the end of the day will mean very little. And China trade talks. There's a lot of hullabaloo about that, that in October they're going to sit down and negotiate. They're already putting feelers out through various channels. Well, here we have to take the attitude of the state of Missouri. The state of Missouri has a slogan, show me. That's the attitude we have to have here. We've had so much about trade negotiations. And when they look good, the market goes up. When it looks bad, the market goes down. The market has gone virtually no place in the last year and a half because of uncertainties about trade. So on that, there'll be more noise. But that's what it all will be, noise. Put your hands around your ears with this noise and just wait for a real deal. Too many times we've had good news and bad news. Let's get something real.
We have with us today one of the foremost economists in America, Dr. Mark Skousen. He's written a number of books, including a textbook called Economic Logic that is probably the best in its field. He's also completed the autobiography of Ben Franklin. Now, Franklin did die several centuries ago, but Mark went through all of his papers, letters. I think he's related to Ben Franklin, and so he completed what Franklin didn't complete over two centuries ago. He puts out numerous newsletters. He's a stock market guru. He also is the founder and the impresario at Freedom Fest in Las Vegas, a meeting of over 2,000 liberty-minded people from around the country trying to remove barriers to liberty, promote liberty. It's a great get-together. I've been there for a number of years and hope to get back again, even after this interview. So with that, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. What a pleasure to be here, Steve. We all hear that GDP, gross domestic product, is the be-all, end-all measure of the health of the economy. But you've been a proponent and indeed a sort of a creator of something called gross output. I like the British version of that called total output, but it gives a much better view of the economy, sort of like an X-ray versus a CAT scan. And uh, you make the point that GDP just measures the bottom line, but does not measure the top line of an economy, everything that goes into the making of the economy, which has led to considerable mischief and misunderstanding by policymakers, including, we hear every quarter, the consumer is 70% of the economy. You say no. So, Thanks to your efforts, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, which is part of the Commerce Department and issues the GDP numbers every three months and all the revisions thereafter, several years ago in 2014, they finally did what you've been urging them to do for years and issue something called gross output. Even better measure, you make the case, and we'll discuss it later, gross domestic expenditures. But first, to enable people to understand about GDP, Walk us through your example of the making of a cup of coffee. GDP just measures the cup of coffee, but there's a lot more that goes into the making of that coffee that is missed by GDP. So give us first the concrete example of the cup of coffee. Yeah, I think that's a really good starting point because uh, coffee starts with the beans, the raw beans, and they have to be... um, cooked and crushed. Not to mention grown. (laughs) Grown, yeah. They go through what I call a, in general, four-stage process of the resource stage, the production stage, which is when the coffee is trans, the coffee beans are crushed and and cooked and so forth. And uh, then then they're distributed. uh, And finally, they show up at Starbucks or uh, Caribou or all of these different kind of uh, uh, coffee shops that that you now see everywhere, and what's interesting is that the government, up until recently, only measured the final product, uh, and that's what GDP is. GDP measures the value of the final products of all goods and services, and that that idea gets lost. the The idea that GDP leaves out the entire supply chain. You know, you can't have a f- finished product without the supply chain. You can't have that cup of coffee without all these workers. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, represents 90% of the workers are in the supply chain. Only 10% work at the retail level. So that's about, so, what, 15 million 
people in retail. Yeah, yeah, and it's only 10%. Uh, Everyone else works in uh, producing the manufacturing, the distribution, the raw commodity stage. There's all of these stages of production, which we call the supply chain, or B2B, if you want to call it B2B business-to-business activity, amounts to $25 trillion. The supply chain represents about $25 trillion in the economy, and GDP itself is only 21. So we're leaving out this huge sector in the economy. And you, you mentioned this idea that consumer spending is the biggest sector of the economy. Well, it's certainly 70% of GDP. But since you're leaving out the supply chain and all the spending in the supply chain, it turns out that consumer spending is really only about a third, not two thirds, only about a third of the economy. It's an important sector. It shouldn't be ignored, but it's not the beginning and end of all things. And consumer, the idea that consumption is the key to prosperity uh, suggests, well, why don't we just all go out and use our credit cards and spend more and borrow more money? And wouldn't that stimulate the economy? But that's a total misnomer. I, 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 use the, I use Seattle as an example with my students. And I say, so why is Seattle prosperous? And uh, was it because uh, suddenly everybody decided to borrow money from their credit cards and so on to go out spending? No, it was because there were four major, and there are, of course, many companies in C- that made S- Seattle what it is today. But I said, students, can you identify four companies that have made the difference in making Seattle prosperous? What's the oldest? Of course, the answer is, and I could test you on this, Boeing, uh, Boeing is first. And then, of course, along came Bill Gates, Microsoft, and then Starbucks, and finally, the biggest of all of them now, Amazon. And the whole idea is that it was through the entrepreneur, the businessman who came up with ideas that consumers didn't even know they wanted that caused Seattle to to boom. Business spending is much more important than consumer spending. Business spending drives the economy, and it's twice the size, almost twice the size as, as consumer spending in the U.S., gross output is much more volatile and is a very pretty good leading indicator. The supply chain does a very good job of anticipating uh, what economic growth, what GDP will do a quarter in advance. So this is why it's so important that we look at gross output in the supply chain early. As we, get, we need to get the data as early as possible. The, the latest data we have is just the first quarter Second quarter GDP is already out, but first quarter uh, gross output uh, basically was growing at a very low rate of 1.6%. The supply chain actually declined in the first quarter. So this, uh, this does fall into play with the sense that we are definitely, our, our economy, despite what GDP has been doing, our economy is definitely slowing down. And I think it's largely due to the trade war uh, that is going on. That's a, this is a costly venture by the president, and uh, it's not without its costs. This leads to several questions. Uh, first, about you make the point about the importance of uh, business investing, business spending, but saying that retail spending is a lagging indicator. 
when those numbers come out, retail sales, uh, if they're good, everyone goes ooh and ah, that shows how strong the economy is. But you make the point that that's the last thing you should look at if you want to look to see what's happening in the future. And if you see the supply chain faltering, eventually the retail sales are going to falter as well. Yeah, in fact, uh, there is the con- – I'm prob- you mentioned my textbook, Economic or, or, or Logic. Or another way to put it is you yeah. put it, higher consumption is the effect, not the cause of prosperity. That's correct. You want to look at consumer spending as the effect, not the cause of prosperity. Um, and the, the conference board puts out the 10 leading indicators, and they come out every month. Uh, and they have they declined for the first time last month for the first time in in over a year, uh, and of course, but the media focuses only on one of their indicators, and that is the consumer confidence index. But the consumer confidence index actually has been renamed the, the confidence index of business indicators. Uh, so it's the con- asking the consumer what they think about their job and the outlook for the economy and so forth. It's not how much they spend on a vacation and that sort of question. So uh, the leading indicators all are all based on the supply chain intermediate activity, including the stock market. The stock market, by the way, is a financing mechanism of the economy and is a leading indicator because it's in the earlier stages of production. I mean, the stock market is not something you consume it's an investment vehicle. In creating an environment for growth, you hit on regulation, stable money. You mentioned trade, removing trade barriers, not putting them in. Tariffs are a tax. It is a sales tax, a tariff that uh, gums up the works. Reducing other tax rates, especially as they affect business, ease of starting a business, fair judicial system, a timely one. But the idea that government spending drives the economy. Where did that idea ever come from? Government doesn't create resources. Government takes resources from us, and we hope they spend it uh, wisely. They often don't, but they don't create resources. Why are they counted as a part of the productive part of the economy? They're not. They're consumers. This was a big debate issue when GDP was created by uh, by Simmons, uh, by Kuznets, uh, Simon Kuznets, back after World War II. Uh, was it going to be C plus I plus G, you know, plus G meaning government? Or was it going to be, as Murray Rothbard said, C plus I minus G? <laughs> C plus I meaning? Uh, C is consumption. I is, is fixed investment, not the supply chain, by the way. They left that out. Um, and and then G is government spending. And, of course, World War II was the classic example, Stephen. This is what got Keynesian economics in in all the textbooks that Paul Samuelson wrote, uh, was that, look, government spending ran this huge deficit and unemployment disappeared. Ten million people suddenly became fully employed. Of course, they were uh, military. uh, And, of course, they leave out during the war, even though you got paychecks if you're in the civilian workforce. You couldn't buy anything. Everything was rationed. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's one reason why there was an explosion of private investment in housing and food production and, and, and building of cars and everything else after World War II. But the Keynesians thought, well, government spending's dropping, then, then we will have a, uh, a major depression right after the war. And it turned out to be just the opposite. Paul Samuelson reversed his views on that. Uh, and, but re- 
real GDP actually declined 17%, uh, uh, according to the statistics after World War II in 1946, 47. And of course, that was totally wrong. It showed you uh, the uh, how GDP is inappropriate. But if yes, you look how, at how, gross how output, you... it actually grew. Very good point, because if you look at that GDP number, you would think, boy, this is worse than the Great Depression. Yeah. Unemployment was full employment. And it was really a boom. <clears throat> yeah. it was a boom and gross time. output, by the way, demonstrates that because it did increase because uh, the supply chain was booming at that time. So this leads to a very basic question. You got the BEA to even publish this thing instead of waiting 100 years, publish it on uh, at least a few times a year in 2014. So why the lag? As you mentioned, we got the second quarter, but we just got the first quarter for uh, gross output. What's the matter with these people? They don't like it, so they're trying to bury it by killing it with the time lag? Well, Steve, it's actually a vast improvement. Uh, the BEA well, used but, uh, to uh, produce gross output every five years, and it was a five-year lag. <laughs> but still, so, still, still not very useful when you have that lag. No, and especially because gross output in the supply chain in particular are a leading indicator. So we want that information as quickly as possible because it's so going to tell us. So why don't they put it out? in this modern day of age well, of high uh, technology? They're a little bit vague on the reasons why they have not been able to do it. You would think that gross output should come first since it's the top line, it's total sales. And that's important uh, for people to remember. GDP is the bottom line. Right. Gross output is revenue, interest costs, rent, leases, wages, all that goes into the bottom line. As you've pointed out, no security analysts, stock analysts, anyone buying a stock would look just at the profit. You want to know what's behind it. What does the future hold? How is this company being run? And yet on the economy side, we just look at the bottom line and that's why we always seem to get surprised. This is, 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 this is a great tragedy in a lot of ways that it took, uh, we now wait, we came to the 21st century uh, before economists caught up with accountants and finance people. Uh, because top line, bottom line is very common on CNBC. We read about it all the time. But unfortunately, uh, when they came up with GDP, they thought, well, what really counts is just the final value, the finished product. They ignored uh, everything, this, the, the stages of production that were required to achieve the, the final output. But I, I, I must say, I, I have my faith in government Steve, has actually been restored to some extent with the BEA actually willing to every quarter publish this data. Now, they're burying it right now. It's still not, uh, they're, they're reluctant for whatever reasons, and I'm trying to get to the bottom of this as to why they're afraid of, of highlighting it. Uh, you've suggested political reasons. I mean, the, these people are they're, they're good people. They're, they're solid economists. I'm sure they treat their dogs very nicely. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> but uh, ideologically, they are, I think those are the reasons they're dragging their feet. Presumably, the Commerce Secretary, even the White House, could order a pickup. But let me ask you a broader question. On these government statistics, they get a lot of raw material, and then they present it to us in a nice little package. Why not have some competition where everyone gets access to that raw material and uh, we'll see who comes up with the better and faster numbers? 
We saw it with the Genome Project 20 years ago. The government was doing this laborious process, and along comes Greg Vinter, and a fraction of the cost and a faster speed, he gets the job done. Instead of billions, he does it for millions. Why not uh, privatize these numbers? Why should the government have a monopoly on those uh, statistics? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And certainly at the Atlanta uh, Fed does a survey and has a estimate of GDP. It's called GDP Now uh, Index, but they don't do the gross output. Uh, they, they are just guesswork because the BEA is the one that, that seems to monopolize control over this. Uh, there are private firms that do try to estimate this sort of thing. Economists are hired by major Wall Street firms and so forth to estimate GDP. Uh, so there is some element of private sector work in this regard. Uh, but you're right. I mean, when you go to the BEA, they have new headquarters in Washington, D.C. They are quite secretive about uh, releasing this data because it will affect the markets. And so... Uh, they're, they're afraid to, to provide this kind of detail until they actually have the release date at 8.30 in the morning on Friday mornings or wherever, whenever they come out on it. Well, if people, they, by the way, they have promised, Steve, that within a year, uh, within a year they plan to release GO at the same time as GDP, but it's at the third estimate. You know, they, they do this monthly yes. estimate. Yes. So it's going to only be the third estimate. So still there's going to be a delay compared to the first estimate well, of GDP. certain individuals in the White House, that would, that, that would have changed. But now, Larry Kudlow, by the to, way, is a big fan of uh, gross output. Not to get too theological, an even better uh, picture of the economy is what you call gross domestic expenditure. For some reason, GO leaves out what, $7 trillion, $10 trillion of sales? Yeah, it's about $8 trillion of sales. It turns out that this is by tradition. Nobody's given me an explanation of it, but at the retail and wholesale level, they only measure net change. That is, they don't include the gross figures. It's only net. And uh, it doesn't make any sense to me. If we truly want to measure spending at all stages of production for goods and services, then why not include everything at the retail and the wholesale level? For some reason, it's a net basis, and I can't quite figure it out. But it is, they do leave out about $8 trillion of uh, uh, and when you include this, we're really a, a $40 trillion, maybe $42 trillion economy in terms of total Instead spending of in the economy. Instead of 20. It's about, it's almost double. You mentioned textbooks. Yeah. Obviously yours. It fully integrates, uh, fully integrates gross output gross as output. the top line in GDP. Do, 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 uh, you, you had hoped several years ago that the others were going to follow suit, have they? Uh, it's been extremely gradual process. Uh, for ex my biggest hope is with uh, McConnell Brew textbook, which uh, uh, Sean Flynn from Scripps is the primary writer. We fully integrated gross output into the textbook. And then, of course, you have to send it around to all of the other professors. And Steve, I have to tell you, I'm going to quote Steve Drucker, uh, Peter Drucker on this. He says, economists are the slowest learners. For some reason, they really are resisting this. I'll give you a funny story. Greg Mankiw, professor of economics at Harvard University. Quoted who, in the press a lot. Yeah. He's a 
he hired by Republicans considers himself a market friendly person. So I said, can I come up and talk to your students and can you integrate gross output into your textbook? And he said, Mark, uh, I hate to say this, but I have my, my students have a hard enough time understanding GDP itself. And I said, Greg, they're Harvard students. They can understand top line and bottom line accounting. <laughs> yeah, as you mentioned, every person who takes an accounting course seems to be able to grasp it. Yeah, exactly. And you see it too when GDP is released, GO gets no mention at all, and unenterprising journalists uh, ignore it as well. So even with the lagging numbers first quarter, you mentioned GO gross output is telling us something. The trade war is having an adverse impact. Walk us through that. I should back up a little bit by saying that the Trump economy was very boom, was booming uh, up until this trade war began. And that's reflected when GO grows faster than GDP. That's the sign that the economy is really expanding. That business means the are supply starting chain to is produce things, re- and yep. uh, that means ultimately it's going to get to the consumer. Right. So that's number one. But in the last two quarters, fourth quarter and first quarter, we've seen a significant uh, slowing down and actually negative now in the supply chain. And that suggests that uh, 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 there is a threat of an actual recession, uh, mild as it is. Uh, because, and we think it's because of the trade war, but GO is actually growing now slower than GDP. And this is a sign of, this is a danger sign that we're headed toward a recession. And, you know, Trump's coming up toward the reelection and, uh, it's all about the economy. Elections have always been on the, about the economy in, 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 uh, in most ways. And so this is a threat. And I think the Chinese I think they're delaying uh, coming to an agreement perhaps to uh, thwart. Uh, they, they probably would prefer someone else in office than, than Trump, don't you think? Uh, who knows what uh, goes through their minds. I have enough trouble figuring out what's going through Washington's minds uh, <laughs> down, down there. But tell us about why the trade war hits the supply chain because I heard it today. I keep hearing, oh, Tariffs are such a small part of GDP, and therefore we can ignore it. It may hurt some farmers, but it's no big deal. Blast that away. It it affects the supply chain, which is a big deal. Walk us through that. Yeah, because uh, I think consumers see the products there, and the prices haven't gone up that much, so they're continuing to buy, and that's been this whole mantra that consumer spending is doing just great. But you have to look behind the product line. You have to look to the supply chain. And that's where the disruption is taking place. So what I that's the key word disruption. Trade wars, those tariffs disrupt the supply chain. Yeah, exactly. And so they're drawing upon inventories rather than new production is the way I see it. And so that's that's pulling it down. Now it's pulling it down on a marginal level. We're not seeing an actual. uh, I mean, we're seeing a decline in the supply chain. and it's, it's only slight in the first quarter. It was actually growing until the first quarter. So uh, it hasn't been devastating yet, uh, but it has that possibility because you're disrupting something that has taken decades to put together. I mean, supply chains with the... It's if not, if it's you've not ever like seen how, an, a I, in a how an iPhone is made, 
It's made from 30 different countries all coming together. And, you know, uh, uh, there, there's actual trade that goes back and forth between Mexico and the U.S. Sometimes the, the, the same product goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And if you disrupt that in any way, uh, that's, that's going to slow down the economy. No question about it. And it's primarily in the supply chain. This is, again, why gross output is such an important statistic. Trade. If people are buying imports, that means they're prosperous. Yet, in the way we compute GDP, imports are seen as a negative. Yeah. It, How do you it, figure that? Well, it's X minus M, which means exports minus imports. Now, the reason for that is GDP is and gross output is a measure of production in the economy. So imports are subtracted out because it's already included in consumption and business purchases. So in other words, it's a way of eliminating double counting uh, in a sense. So that's why import is subtracted. Unfortunately, the effect is that you get no sense at all how important import exports are. So the World Bank has a much better chart. People go to exports and imports or trade statistics by the World Bank. The World Bank shows exports plus import, plus imports as a percent of GDP. And it's been moving up. It's almost 30% in the U.S. It used to be only 15, just in the last. So in in other countries, it's 60 Huh? It's 60% in some countries. Oh, yeah. It's 100% in Panama. And in Germany, it's 60%. Uh, Europe has a much higher level. So when you disrupt that, you are really disrupting the entire economy. It's not just a marginal impact, uh, and it's, it's, it's really significant. I encourage people to go to that World Bank figure. It really is amazing how... Nice and I put it in my Bank, textbook, by the way. Nice to know the World Bank is doing something right. They also do something else right, uh, just as an aside, not to beat up on the institution, is a survey they do each year, as you know, of 190 economies in the world called Doing Business, oh, which yes. uh, rates countries how easy it is or hard it is to start a business. Rather enlightening. Yeah, uh, for, no, absolutely. For, for all of its you flaws. know, it's the IMF that we, we is the is the bad guy in this whole thing. As you know, they've screwed up Argentina and a lot of other places. You bet. Another subject for another time. Monetary policy. The focus has been on the Fed. Should the Fed be setting interest rates or should uh, borrowing lenders set interest rates? Well, I am in your camp on this. Uh, and in fact, uh, you are in Milton Friedman's camp as well. He always thought that uh, that basically you should increase the money supply at a stable rate. Uh, he, he rejected the gold standard, as you know. This, that's one area where you and, and Milton disagreed. But uh, you would certainly get a much more stable environment if you increase the money supply at a very stable rate, use a computer to do it, and then let interest rates just be decided by private individuals well, you, and even institutions. Even if you don't uh, try to manipulate the money supply, just let... Uh, we come in an agreement where you're going to pay me 3.5% to, to borrow, that's fine. Fed shouldn't get involved in that. What about its bloated portfolio? Shouldn't it let that run down? They've, in effect, taken $4 trillion out of the banking system. Well, the quantitative Three easing, Three uh, trillion. which was $4 trillion, amounted to basically they, they distributed 
they paid for these useless bonds and they put it back into the system. Where did that money go? I often get that question because why didn't we get inflation as a result of that? And the answer is we did get inflation. It went into stocks and it went into bonds and it also went into real estate. And we have had a dramatic inflation in the stock market and the bond market. And look at the bond market has been just as successful as the stock market and real estate. So that's where that money went. The money had to go. So it did not go into consumer goods. That's the point I'm making. It it went into other areas and we don't, our CPI is another defective measure of Consumer cost price of index, which Consum- everyone. It's just not a fair. Equals inflation, which and it isn't. It doesn't include real estate, not stocks. doesn't even include taxes, most taxes. Probably really doesn't really include the increased amount of money that people are paying co-pays for their ins- health insurance policies. I think there is some element of the CPI in that, but uh, they have tried to improve it. But no, there's it's, there's a lot of distortions. It's not a measure of the true cost of living there. So uh, I think running down is, uh, that is fine. Now, I will tell you that M3, which the Fed no longer uh, reports on, M3 and M4, these broader M- bases. M-, M stands for money supply. So yes. uh, theologians love this. They get all sorts of different Ms. Well, it's the M3 is growing at a three percent, uh, a 9% rate, which is really quite significant. And I believe this is so one M3, reason gold uh, for, and for, silver for the, are rising for, in for, price. For those who... Uh, are interested in what, what does M3 include? Currency and circulation, bank reserves, and what else? Well, yes, but it also includes uh, certificates of deposit in Europe and so forth. So it's a, a much broader based money supply figure. And it, I think it is a more accurate figure of what's happening monetarily. And it does suggest a return of inflation, not, not dramatic necessarily, but the fact that gold is rising in price is an indicator that inflation is coming back. And I do find it really, another thing that I really complain about in the Fed is actually having an inflation target. I mean, if you want an inflation target, it should be zero or less. It should not be 2%. We shouldn't be encouraging inflation. Or the idea you can control the price of an iPad. I mean, come on. Yeah, well, uh, Paul Volcker, even Paul Volcker is opposed. He, in his biography, railed against. He thought it was idiotic to have a 2% inflation target rate. So he was very much opposed well, to in, Ben in, in that documentary, In Money We Trust, that you uh, played a prominent role in, yeah. uh, Volcker makes that point. Paul Volcker, former head of the Federal Reserve, that he thinks this idea of inflation targeting is insane. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just going to cause a lot of mischief. So in terms, in terms of uh, the Fed, less is more. Leave the economy alone. People can take care of it. And in terms of trade, uh, looking at gross output, understanding the importance of these sophisticated supply chains, which, as you point out, take years to uh, create. Disrupting them is not like I, uh, I like the comparison of changing a pitcher in a ball game or changing quarterbacks in a football game. This is very intricate. And when their uncertainty is introduced or begins even a slight disruption, it has an outsized impact. So, uh, Mark, uh, in closing, you write a lot about the stock market. Are you bullish, bearish, or you say uh, you can't predict the future, but uh, just look for good stocks in the meantime? Yeah, I'm more in the latter category, and I have some stocks that have done really well. We've, we've, we've had a superior track record over the last 
15 or so years in my newsletter forecasts and strategies, um, I am uh, fearful that uh, this trade war is dragging on. It's not easy to win, as President Trump said famously. Um, and it's we true are about all wars. We they have, always take yeah, courses you don't anticipate. Well, that's right. And we uh, we've added gold to the first time in eight years to our portfolio. So this year we have. Uh, uh, Franco Nevada, which is financing mining companies, it's up almost 40% this year. So that's been a, a big winner for us. Um, it, is a, it is a major issue to de- debate. And I, I should mention uh, next year at our Freedom Fest, which is in 2020, uh, we're going to be, uh, our theme is uh, uh, catch the vision. And we're going to be looking at, at this new decade. Is the new decade a, is it going to be a, another roaring 20s and a new era of prosperity for the next 20s, uh, next decade? Or are we going to face depression and another war? I mean, those are those are major issues. And I'm so delighted that you're going to be with us next year. Uh, it's really going to be uh, an important conference. Mark, is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? I think one area that really uh, concerns a lot of people is the potential abuse of power by President Trump with these executive orders. Uh, I think it's I think it's an important topic, uh, and a lot of people are fearful that no president has ever taken advantage of uh, executive orders like Trump. I could be wrong about that, but. He's probably using them more than anybody. Has, any, has anybody done a study on that? I don't believe so, uh, but I'm very disappointed he hasn't uh, issued one that mandating you have to buy subscriptions to Forbes magazine. I'm very, uh, very annoyed by that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he could do it for national security. You know, your 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 nation you know, would be more secure if people yeah. were more enlightened. You know, Grover <laughs> Grover Norquist uh, argued who's a political activist. Yes. Uh, for indexing of uh, capital gains and to do it yes. by executive order. And personally, I still think it has to go through Congress. Now, it may not pass, but it just seems like the president's over uh, overusing his uh, authority here to use national emergency for any uh, power play that he wants. Uh, uh, I am fearful that, that this could... Uh, be setting a precedent. You don't agree? Well, the, the, the problem is presidents change. And I just imagine what Elizabeth Warren or some other people whose economic views, I'm being polite, I don't agree with, would do if they are in the executive office. There's a reason why the founders had due process, not only in law, but also in how government decisions are made. You know, um, Elizabeth Warren, and I've met her, you've probably met her as well, she comes across as very shrill to me, and that is that is something to be worrisome. Of course, we have Trump and his antics, who knows, uh, but she is coming up in the polls compared to, uh, uh, to Biden. Uh, Biden seems to be drifting in terms of support, so it'll be interesting to see. Uh, w- one of the things we're doing... Uh, uh, you know, the Democrats may elect a a socialist. I mean, who knows? Uh, this, this These are dangerous times, and you just never know what, what might happen. 
I actually <laughs> am giving a talk at the Wisconsin Forum uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, uh, how do you get rid of a bad idea that is democratic ca- uh, socialism? And the answer is with a better idea, democratic capitalism. And uh, there's a lot of examples. Did you know that Microsoft has created 12,000 millionaires, employees, through their stock option programs? So, you know, when you, when you have that kind of sharing of the wealth and it's voluntary, it's not mandated, uh, that gets the attention of young people who are tempted by socialism. To me, democratic socialism is sharing of the poverty while democratic capitalism is more sharing of the wealth. Well, Mark, thank you for being with us. My pleasure, Steve. Real pleasure. And now, here's my reads of the week. First one, it's entitled, What's Russia to Us? It's written by Angela Cotovila at Claremont Review of Books. You can find it on claremont.org. Claremont, C-L-A-R-E-M-O-N-T, claremont.org slash C-R-B. Those are the initials for Claremont Review of Books. The article gives a different take on Russia. In effect, we should be less concerned about Russia and more concerned about China. It's a provocative piece, but we need something to stir the mind, and this gives us a little different point of view about how we should view Russia Russia's been an obsession with the U.S. political world, but that obsession is a mistake. China is the one we should be focused on. The next read is entitled, The Trade Wars Winners Don't Include Us. It's written by Robert Zellick, Z-O-E-L-L-I-C-K, at the Wall Street Journal, WSJ.com. Zellick is a former head of the World Bank, former trade negotiator, ambassador, And his point is, we've lost foreign markets, we've suffered retaliation, falling investment. He asks, what's the upside? What have we actually gotten out of all of this in the past year and a half? Good question. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.